All right, well, here we go. Podcast number five, I believe. And today we have Kyle Williams. Kyle, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so what we'd love to do uh, to start is just kind of tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Tell us about your organization, and we'll jump into it. Sure. Uh, my name is Kyle Williams. I'm the Director of Development for the Foster and Adoptive Care Coalition. Uh, I've been with them since uh, 2016. Um, we do uh, two things. We recruit foster families, foster and adoptive families for the region's hardest to place children. And then we uh, have a number of programs that seek to uh, retain those families to make sure that they are supported um, through uh, all the work that they do to help children heal from their trauma. Gotcha. So those are kind wow. of, we have a lot of different programs. They all fall under one of those two buckets though. That's kind of the easiest way to explain it. And we serve uh, seven counties in Missouri, seven counties in Illinois. So kind of the whole metro wow. area. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so let's, let's go back in time then, like we sure. talked about earlier. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, kind of your early life, grade school into high school, those, those kind of formative experiences that you had. Sure. Um, so I was actually born, I'm, I'm originally from southeastern Illinois. Um, I always like walk through explaining it, but no one ever knows. It's Carmi, Illinois. Oh, I know so Carmi. You know Carmi? I actually did a film down there. Really? <laughs> yeah, no one ever school. knows Carmi. Yeah. No one ever knows oh, Carmi. Yeah. Yeah, um, actually, it's, I think Ronald Reagan's from around there, like White County, Edwards County area. Uh, the nearest major city is Paducah, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, so it's down where Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois all meet, kind of on the Wabash River. Um, so that's where, but you, you did a, so we did a, we did a film project down there with a principal that reached out to us and then we even got invited to like the, uh, she helped us get into the Illinois principals association conference. Okay. This is way back when we were just getting started. This was many, many years ago. And then we always drive that way when my father and I go to, uh, like Terre Haute. Well, no, well, we go to Bowling Green, Kentucky, Hmm. uh, to race every summer together. Okay. And we always drive down that Race road, what? so uh, drag, drag racing. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Old school nostalgia Very drag, cool. so. But no, I totally know that. That's yeah. funny. Gebs will appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so that's where, that's where most of my family's from. Uh, my parents were both worked in education. My dad was a, a school psychologist. My mom was a special ed teacher. Um, at a certain point, he actually um, tried to unionize. So this is back in the, like, 80s, 90s. Um, support staff like social workers, um, paraprofessionals, speech language pathologists, people like that who work for schools, uh, weren't part of the union, teachers union obviously, so they got treated much worse than teachers did, and teachers don't get treated all that great either. Uh, this is rural Illinois, so the schools share those professionals, and he tried to unionize those professionals, uh, which did not go well. Uh, he was fired, blackballed. What would it was technically it's illegal under the National Labor Relations Act, but um, you know it's rural Illinois, and we haven't had like good union law enforcement in 50, 60 years. So we moved across the state uh, looking for him to get a job, and ended up settling in uh, Collinsville, Illinois, right across the river. Um, and so Collinsville so, was was uh, was that like uh, middle school, high school years? Yeah, 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 yeah. L- late late grade school too, um, and actually. Uh, 
so that's, I mean, if your listeners are dying to know, this is a St. Louis-based podcast. That is where I went to high school. <laughs> there you go. So oh, gosh. Should we just get that out of the way? Where did oh, no. you go to high school? Hey, I'm from Alton, Illinois, so we're okay. Ill- we're, you and I are Illinois guys. That question does not apply to us. Although yeah. my son just went on his high, first high school visit uh, really? Friday, which was an interesting experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Where did he go to? He went to Vianney, which was a great experience. Yeah. And they had his name up on the TV yeah. when we walked in. Yeah. They took a picture of him. They rolled out the red carpet. And it was funny because nice. it, it kind of reminds me of my hotel roots because before I got to kind of oh, revisit you video. You about this. Yeah, yeah, I used to work in the hotel business and we would do the same thing for clients. Yeah. They'd walk into the ballroom and we'd have their, yeah. the company name up on the screens uh-huh. and we'd give it, you know, so it was a really interesting yeah. thing for my 13 year old to, yeah. to, you know, to be the uh, king of campus for a day. But yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it is a weird question that we ask. Uh, and I do it too. Uh, and I've even noticed more people from Illinois doing it, but I do feel like most of my friends since moving to the city are people from Southern Illinois. And I wonder how much of that is that like, that Illinois transplants tend to stick together because it's so insular. Um, there's yeah. actually, there's even, uh, there's a really cool organization under the Missouri um, Economic Development Partnership called Mosaic. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but great. they, their whole thing is about making uh, immigrants feel welcome here in St. Louis. So young professionals who move here uh, obviously have a lot of like trouble integrating into the community because, you know, we have a lot of strengths here, but welcoming people and being inclusive socially, not just professionally, is not always one of our strengths. Yeah. And well, and I, I read an article too about that, about uh, kind of the strengths of our neighborhoods, but how sometimes our neighborhoods are kind of siloed a little bit, you know, yeah. you kind of don't leave your neighborhood. Absolutely. Your thing, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so Collinsville was kind of like those formative years. Yeah. Um, I always like to ask people kind of like, d- did anything happen in those years, you know, as far as like a great mentor? Sounds like you had some pretty amazing parents. Were there experiences that you had or people that you met that kind of began to shape the direction you would go? Were there, were there things that happened in high school that shaped where you wanted to go as far as college and career? Um, <laughs> yeah, so college was never uh, part of the plan for me. We did not have, I didn't have the grades for one thing. I was not a very good student. Um, I, I would bet I got out of there with a 2.0, probably a little, I mean, it was, it was rough. I did not great attendance either. Um, I just kind of didn't have it together at that point in my life. Um, we also, I mean, we didn't have any money for college. Um, my brother went to college for a little bit, but never finished. Um, so that wasn't really part of the plan. When I was uh, 16, I decided I was going to join uh, the military. And then I actually enlisted when I was 17, when I was a junior in high school, uh, and left and went and joined uh, the United States Army. Um, and then I, uh, I didn't intend on coming back and finishing high school. Uh, again, didn't like school. I didn't feel like school like me. I had a big you know, chip on my shoulder, all that sure. stuff. Uh, I had I had a couple of teachers I liked, but it just school was not didn't fit my disposition. Yeah, yeah I had a complicated yeah. high school experience too, but I fortunately had a teacher that was yeah kind of saved it all for me my senior year. <laughs> yeah, I had one my junior year, uh, Renee Scheiber, who was this she was like insane, but like in a good way. Yeah. She uh, she was a Wellesley grad, former Black Panther, just this like force. Uh, wow. And she, but I mean, she was not encouraging me to stay in school. She was like, no, school, this is all, this is all fake. Like, don't bother this. I'm like, I don't think you're supposed to be, I don't think this is the message that, 
but she was. She's uh, trying to get through to you, though. Yeah, yeah but yeah. and she she did it. I mean, she. I think she was really good at not teaching kids the curriculum necessarily, but teaching them how to think. Yeah, like, that was her real strength. Was teaching people how to think. Um, she wasted that on me, however. She's like, here's how to think critically. Now go join the United States the military. So what about, uh, what year would that have been when you were serving? 09. I enlisted in April of 09. So I decided when I was 16 and then right after my birthday, I went down, me and a, a buddy went down and enlisted together. Wow. Um, he was military police. I was a combat engineer, which is like explosives, C4, TNT, dynamite, stuff like that. Um, went... Uh, so if you're, it's funny, if you're 17, you have to get your parents' permission because you're still a minor, which is like insane that they but can, can enlist, but you still have to have your, yeah, yeah, it's like whole ethical issues with that. But, um, so she's like, well, I don't want you to do anything dangerous. And I was like, oh, of course not. <laughs> so I'm like, just explosives. Hey, no, no, no. <laughs> well, and I told her I was doing like uh, some kind of mechanic thing or something like that. And then we got to the recruiting office and I, I asked the recruiter, I was like, she's in the other room. I go. I need you to tell her that the mechanic job isn't open and that you're going to sign me up for this temporarily and then we're going to change it later. And he, <laughs> like, I thought he was going to like, I was going to have to like hand this guy some money. He was like, yeah, sure. This is like, whatever. I've been here before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 2009 too. So it's, it's during the surge. They had to get 150,000 new boots on the ground in like a year, which wow. um, I don't know if you've ever tried to background check. I mean, there were guys coming in with like gang related tattoos and, you know, like all sorts. I mean, just, it was, it was wild. Wow. There's supposed to be about a hundred people in a company. Uh, my training company had 270. Yeah. This is like, it, it was just, they were just throwing people through there trying to get wow. them out. I remember we had a guy, um, show up to basic training who he stepped off the bus and they're, you know, screaming at you and all that. And he just like fell down and started crying. Oh no. Well, come to find out he had an IQ of about 60. And this kid was like severe developmental disability and a recruiter had helped him get through. Um, so it was a weird time yeah, to be in the military. Sure. Like I, I talked to some guys who enlisted like in 03 or 02 when people were joining for ideology, you know, post 9 11. Yeah. yeah. And they had a much different experience than I had joining in 09 when it was kind of like, hey, if you've got. Uh, you know, like a felony or something on your record, you can get in now. And there are a lot of people for, that's a super attractive offer. Uh, the military is, and it was this for me too. So I don't want to like say, oh yeah, these guys and myself are two separate pools of people, but um, it's, it's a ticket out for most people who join, right? Like, well, I mean, I thought about it too. You know, I yeah. was, I was, Right. I was thinking, well, maybe I should just join the Marines or something. You know, I, right. I, I, yeah. Maybe this will be my ticket for, I don't want, you know, my, my bad grades and my kind of yeah. struggling in high school. Yeah. That's, like, that's, you're the exact demographic they're looking for. Yeah. You know, they set up those tables at high school gyms and they look for the maladjusted young guys that don't have anything else going on, don't have a plan. It's kind of like, you know, hey, do this for four years. You'll have these benefits, and you'll be able to go do something cool. You'll have money for college if you want to go. Now, what they don't tell you is, uh, you know, what the actual college graduation rates for your peers are going to be after you get out. They don't tell you how many people injure themselves, or oh, wow, you know, like they it's don't tell the you the actual. <laughs> yeah, they don't tell you the actual outcomes, but they tell you what you have uh, access to. Um, 
Well, and so how long did you serve? Like, give us an idea of like your tenure and like so experience. I I joined up in '09, and then by 2000, beginning of 2011, I was in Afghanistan, and I did 11 months and 20 something days, so about a year tour. Uh, right after that, they closed down year tours. They said we're moving to a six month tour model. That's much more. And I was like, yeah, that's you're right. That would have been nice. For, yeah, yeah right after you. Yeah. yeah. Um, Wow. But they drew down when I left in 2012, so they didn't need quite as many people. Um, and then after that, I was an instructor for the state of Illinois. So I was able to just go to, I, basically, I never intended to go to college, but when I got done with my deployment, I was like, you know, college sounds pretty, I was looking at my buddies who were going to, uh, I had two friends that were going to University of Illinois in mm-hmm. Champaign. And I said, that looks like a much better time than what I'm doing here. <laughs> I'm going to go try that. And so I was a state instructor, uh, went to, lived on campus, but would go out and train different units. Um, when a unit's getting ready to deploy, they have to recertify on all their basic, like we call them warrior tasks. So um, rifle and pistol marksmanship for my job, you gotta go to the demo range and requalify with all the different explosives and equipment that you use, um, down to basic stuff like land navigation, using map. They just have to kind of get refreshers on all that. Yeah. So I would go out with a team of instructors and we would recertify them on those kind of things. It was a, it was a great gig because again, I got to live on campus and um, kind of go out just periodically on these little excursions. I got to travel all the glorious places that my recruiter promised. I got to go to Camp Atterbury, Indiana, and <laughs> Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. See and, the world. Yeah. Yeah, 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 just kind of around the the Midwest and my goodness, like out. what a what a backstory there. Yeah, it was uh, so. And then so how yeah how do you get how do you get from that <laughs> yeah. incredible story and you know, the, backstory the to the fun like, thing? And I'm sure foster adoptive care. Yeah, I'm sure you'll you'll sort of realize this as you interview more development people is that development is rarely somebody's first career choice because no one I didn't know this existed. I didn't know this existed four years ago. Um, you know, you go to a, the AFP, the fundraisers conference that we have, the Association of Fundraising Professionals here in St. Louis, and you know, so you break down into a session, ask everybody, "How'd you get into development?" It's the most interesting question. You're going to hear some truly crazy answers. Sometimes it's people's fifth, sixth career. Sometimes that shows, which is not always the best thing. But a lot of times, you get really bright people who bright personal people who kind of fall into it because they're mission driven. Sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I went to college. I uh, went to University of Illinois in Champaign Urbana. Uh, loved it. It was uh, an amazing time. I studied uh, archaeology. I was focused on prehistoric archaeology of North America. That was really my my thing. I thought I wanted to do academia. Um, well, I mean, you were instructing, you know. Right. I, you you kind of had a little bit of a foundation there. Yeah, for I really, I like the research side of things. Yeah, archaeology, prehistoric archaeology, you're outside, you're digging, you're interacting. I liked history. I you're kind of interacting directly. You're interfacing with history. You're making it. You're uncovering it. Um, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, so I've, I really wanted to be a research archaeologist. That's what I wanted to do. At some point, somebody was like, you know how much grad school you have to do for that? And my whole, like, I again, never really liked school. It kind of kicked in by, like, sophomore year. I was like, I don't even know how I thought that this would be a good idea. I think I just thought I would muscle through it, but it, it takes about nine years to get wow. your doctorate in archaeology. So I had peers that were, you know, 32 and just getting out of school for the first time. And I was like, wow. I don't think that's for me. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> at, at the same time, I kind of picked up a 
uh, I was taking some neuroscience coursework because and doing some lab work uh, with that. I was interested in like language and cognition, uh, how we process language, what the neurological kind of architecture is underlying that. I was interested in a lot of things, but didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do other than like, I thought I wanted to do research. Um, at the same time, I had, I was, you know, I've always volunteered a lot for different things. And uh, I think that's one of the things my parents were kind of pretty serious about, you know, that mm -hmm. idea of service. Sure. Um, at the time, I was running a small nonprofit that sent volunteer trips around the country. Uh, sort of these service trips during uh, fall, winter, spring break. And not only running that group, but then going to other nonprofits. Um, yeah, we did some immigration organizing down in Hidalgo County, Texas. We did uh, at-risk girls empowerment and education in Atlanta. Seeing some of those nonprofits and how they worked, it was, I don't even remember if there was an exact moment but I mean, I'm sure you guys know there's a there's a moment when you're just like, oh yeah, this is now like part of my understanding of the world of like what I want to do. Mm -hmm. There's not necessarily an epiphany. It's great when we have those. Um, I don't tend to have epiphanies. I just tend to slowly reorient my thinking over many months and yeah. um, kind of reflection. Um, but at a certain point, it's like. Nonprofit. This just makes complete sense. Some of the things that drew me to the military were the same things. You know, it's that mission-driven kind of service-oriented mindset, but also like some of the unique challenges, like scarcity of resources. It's that's an intimidating thing, but it's also something that like makes you have to think outside the box. It makes you have to adapt. It you know, you can't just say, well, hey, this is kind of outside our capability right now it's like no it has to get done like figure it out for somebody who's likes problem solving which is very much what I like to do uh, get a hold of something and just tear it apart and figure out how it how it works and how it can be made to work that's a really attractive prospect yeah well and, and leading and working with a nonprofit that's what it's all about right you know you're creating mm -hmm. solutions and you're, you're looking for right you know unique solutions sometimes so yeah. It's interesting to, to, to hear your backstory and kind of see how that, and, and maybe as you get a little older, you know, you'll look back and have a better sense of that. But <clears throat> I'm at an age now where I'm beginning to kind of remember experiences and remember things that my parents mm -hmm. said or did. And I'm like, this is starting to make sense now. Tie those things. This is really starting right. to make a lot more sense. I even, I even have these weird moments where I, I remember like, you know, my dad always like uh, messed around with old cars. And mm -hmm. for a lot of years, he did that to put some of my older siblings through school. Sure. <clears throat> and that idea of kind of like recycling and repurposing and, and, and doing things um, on your own with your own yeah. tools, like making tools because yeah. you couldn't afford it. And even now when we work, work on projects, I'm like, Dad, we can just buy this out of, I'll just buy this right. piece. He's like, well, what do you mean? This is a piece we would have built 10 years ago. I don't, yeah. don't want to buy that, you know. Yeah. And I think about our process now with our nonprofits and, and explaining to them like, hey, we can repurpose these interviews or right. we, in fact, we just did something for uh, for Concordance Academy of Leadership. Uh -huh. And it actually was a was a side interview that we had where she told this story and I, and I sat on that story for a mm -hmm. couple of years. They even put on Vimeo with a password yeah. just so I could go back to it and be like, could this be developed into something, yeah. you know? There's that, something there. There's something there. And I look back at that experience of kind of watching my dad take 
kind of nothing and turn it into something and for some decent, right. you know, to put my older sister through college or to pay for a couple semesters right. or something. I've made these connections now. It's crazy. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I think that's an interesting, I was thinking about this the other day, but it's like you mentioned as, as you get older then tie, remembering things and then tying them back to patterns of behavior that exist now. I think one of the things that has started to stand out to me recently is that like a memory doesn't have to teach you something in the moment. Like an experience doesn't have to teach you something in the moment. I can't tell you how many times I've had something, whether it was in the military or after or traveling or whatever, where I've walked out of something and be like, that was significant. I don't know what the message there was, but that was a <laughs> it's significant gonna, yeah, experience. But it's going to come, right? <laughs> I mean, it'll teach you eventually. Yeah. You know, that's the way our brains work. We're associative thinkers. At, at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, you're going to be sitting there and you're going to have a completely unrelated experience or so you think, and you're going to tie them together and it's going to click. But well, I mean, when I was... It, recycle it. You can wait and that thing is going to come back. It makes so much sense yeah. now. Now when I use those analogies with clients, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, this is no different than just repurposing right. a piece of... Uh, material around your yeah. garage, your property, or whatever, into something useful, and that's all. We're, that's literally all we're trying to do. Right. There was a great interview yeah. with so and so. Let's go back to that, and for literally very small cost, let's turn that into a piece of content for you. Right. You know, and sometimes we just do that as bonus content. We just did that for. Um, I'm from Alton, Illinois, so Alton mm. Steel has got a great oh, yeah. comeback story. Yeah. We, yeah they we, do. we just over delivered. We pulled and, and grabbed a few things and did a little about sure. piece and. It was just that idea of like delivering it to them. And, right. and again, I just I equate these back to these experiences with my dad a lot. But <clears throat> I think the other thing I should say is that for me, it's about gratitude. Like I'm so incredibly grateful that I've gotten mm. this experience I'm having with my, my company. Because yeah. for a long time, I didn't get to do this. And I've told a lot of the young guys that work with me, like, you know, I grinded it out in a hotel mm -hmm. for 10 years to make a living and, and buy a house. It's a tough industry. And it was a very tough industry, but I look back on it now so fondly, but at the yeah. time I was like, this is terrible. I'm working these crazy right. hours. These clients are so demanding. But now I look back at with this, with this fondness of like, I've learned so much in all of those crazy right. experiences that have now prepared me for yeah. running this little company. That's funny. Know? One of the things that we talk about with uh, children impacted by foster care, one of the things we talk about a lot is We'll talk to parents who have kids that are, you know, 21 or 22 and like, you know, got them adopted. I don't understand. Why is everything crazy? Why is it blowing up? And it's like, you got to think, even if you come from a stable background without trauma, your early 20s are a pretty crazy, volatile time no matter what. You got to push through that. And uh, there was actually, it was an article in The Economist that said that uh, America produces really lackluster poor 20 year olds, but excellent 30 year olds. And I think that's kind of the time scale you got to look at for success sometimes is that, you know, you may really have to slog it out, grind it out, you know, have Survive some those troubling 20s. times. But once you get through, uh, you're going to be okay. You're going to be stronger for it. And you'll have those memories that you can, you can tie back to those things that you can come back to and reuse and recycle. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, you traveled around a little bit, you experienced some of these nonprofits or kind of the nonprofit world yeah. and what it offered. So yeah. what direction did your life take after that? So I basically, once I realized I wanted to work in a nonprofit, it was a matter of picking an issue, right? I, there were a lot of things I cared about. Um, I wanted to focus on something that was upstream of other issues. Um, I didn't want to focus on something that was a symptom of something else. And you can make the argument that any issue in, in social change is a symptom, symptomatic of something else. But I wanted to work at something that felt close to the root of the cause. 
Um, and what I kind of identified was, for me, was child welfare. And that wasn't, and now, especially with what we know about trauma and developmental trauma, what I was really identifying was not child welfare as a field, but the idea of developmental trauma and its effects. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say, and I would say this is common to a lot of people who work in child welfare, um, there wasn't a single experience that pointed me towards that. It was sort of gravitational. You just sort of, there's, you almost think like, well, what else could I work in? You know, like, there's not really anything else that I would care about. If I went and worked in, uh, I'm trying to think of something that's like climate change or something like that, environmental protection. Like, Some big that's a, thing. Yeah, that's yeah. an enormously important issue, mm -hmm. but I don't have an emotional connection with that. Yeah. Um, that's a rational, a purely rational interest for me. Um, this one was more deeply emotional. And some of that could be my experience. It, it could be. It, it, my experience with the military. Mm -hmm. um, the, in a, we were very lucky here because we have an understanding of the value of children's lives. That is not always the case in other parts of the world. Um, not to say that we're you know so much better. I mean, we still in many ways don't value adequately the, the worth of children and women and children, which are so often tied together. But in, in a lot of parts of the world, especially parts that are really violent and undergoing uh, civil war, things like that, um, like children are like their leverage, right? Dependents in general are like a knife you stick between somebody's ribs. You know, that's something you use to get leverage over another person, typically another man who you have some kind of political or ethnic rivalry with. Um, and I think that seeing that, I knew it was important, but then when I got back, the more I looked at these other parts of the country, Hidalgo County, where you've got, um, you know, five or six kids living in 150 square feet or uh, with no running water and no electricity, or you know, West Atlanta or South Atlanta, where you've got um, a family that's making you know thirty-three thousand dollars a year, family four making thirty-three thousand dollars a year, and they're not quite poor enough to qualify for some benefits. And you're like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, um, I think what I realized is we don't have this figured out either, and not only do we not have it figured out, like. We're not even trying to figure it out in some cases. Um, Kaiser Permanente uh, Institute out in California has said that developmental trauma is like the number one threat to the United States, the number one health threat that we're facing. Absolutely. Um, and they've said that the uh, number one protective factor, they've been saying this for 20 years or whatever, they published, they're the ones who created the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, uh, worth looking up, but it's basically a rating system of have you witnessed domestic violence, community violence, uh, parent with substance abuse, divorce, different developmental trauma sure. events. Um, and a higher ACEs score is correlated with worse mental health outcomes, worse physical health outcomes, higher, I mean, things as crazy as like, you can have a higher rate of asthma if you have these experiences. These traumatic experiences. Right. Um, realizing that Sorry, the number one protective factor against developmental trauma is a stable relationship with a caregiver. 
for children involved with the child welfare system, this was a, a key piece of like getting me to focus on this, for children involved with the child welfare system, that relationship has been severed by the state. Um, whatever the failings of the parent, that's still the child's parent. And they still, that's their number one protective factor that they have. So if you sever that, you need to replace it with something quick or ensure that that connection's maintained while they're having to live somewhere else for Some a little while. Environment, yeah. Right, you'd have to know that you are inflicting a pretty extreme psychic wound that's gonna generate some, some really extreme physical and mental health outcomes down the road. Um, so I think once I realized that, I knew I wanted to work in child welfare, and again, it wasn't an epiphany, it was sort of Know, over the, over time, reading things and um, well, and, and some of know. those subconscious experiences you probably had overseas, right? Like right. referenced, you know, seeing mm -hmm. that and, and thinking about that, right? It's crazy. Um, and so, did you did you land at the, you know, Foster Adoptive Coalition first, or did you start some like? I went back to Southern Illinois after college. Uh, didn't really have a plan. This is twenty fifteen. And I applied to uh, uh, case management, you know, foster care, big one of the big foster care agencies down in Southern Illinois. And I said, I want to work here. Uh, here's my background. And they were like, Wow, you are not qualified to do anything <laughs> at all. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, you know, the the old prehistoric archaeology, a little bit of neuroscience, Some a little bit of military explosives. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what you guys They're have. Like, Please for me. leave right now. <laughs> right. They were like, you know, they kind of said, Do you want to be a case assistant? Which is like you're transporting kids between home visits. And I was like, Look, that sounds wonderful for somebody, but not from that's just not my personality type. Um, to kind of, I always give this example, but. <clears throat> I'm, I'm definitely not a direct service personality. Uh, I realized that actually when I ended up at the coalition, it was a pretty funny story. So we're like a commune, basically. We have like, we have one office manager, but like at the time we didn't. And so everybody picks up the phones, like everybody has chores around the office. <laughs> and I was in early one morning, it was like 7.30 and I pick up the phone and it's this, um, it's this girl, I would probably nine, 10, and she's crying and she's like, I have to come into foster care. I want to turn myself into, I can't live at home anymore. Like, I don't know what to do. And I, if my friends who know me start laughing immediately when they hear that I got that, not that it's a funny situation, but the fact that like, I am now expected to deal with this. And I'm like, okay. Oh uh, and I stand up and I'm looking around. I see somebody in our education department uh, working with schools to implement special education plans and fight suspensions and things like that. And I run over to her and I say, I got a call in line too. I really need you to take this. And she goes, I, you know, I work in the schools. I don't know. And I was like, I don't think you understand how bad this is going to get if you make me feel this call right now. And she goes, okay. And she picks it up and she goes, hey, honey, how are you doing? Are you safe? Do you need me to call anyone? I was like, these are phenomenal questions that would yes. not have occurred to me. I could have been on the phone 20 minutes with that girl and I would have been like, what kind of music do you like? You know, I, <laughs> it's not my personality. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so fortunately, the case manager agency I went to, they, uh, they had an opening on the development team and they were kind of like, have you ever heard of this? And I was like, no, I haven't. Um, they sort of explained it to me and really development is, you know, you need to be a communicator. You need to like to talk to people. You need to have good verbal and written communication skills. Um, you need to be willing to work kind of some weird hours, you know, a lot of nights and weekends. That's when donors and volunteers can typically work with you. Um, 
and you need to be able to um, stay focused on the mission and be like driven by that. Uh, if you're not, it's going to be pretty emotionally draining work. Um, a lot of people compare it to sales. Uh, I've heard a lot of, I think a more accurate description and AFP talks about this. I've heard it at AFP several times. It's like almost more like dating. It's, which is like not a great description. I, but I, yeah, but you can it's, see you're that. building a relationship. I, I, right? like, I can see that a little bit. Yeah. yeah you're you're going out and you're meeting with people and it's, I think it's, it's kind of telling that there's no job that you can compare that dating is the only thing because we're not a relational society. We're a transactional society. And so the idea when you're like trying to explain, how do I explain a job where building relationships is the goal? That's the job, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's like when we talk to young creatives that want to do what we're doing or they yeah. want to be a photographer or they want to do this or that. And I'm like, look, it's not about the camera. You know, you can't yeah. keep buying the next best camera expecting right. that the new camera is going to invent not gonna jobs for you, edge. you know, yeah. and a good friend of ours does a lot of mentoring to young creatives and they just don't, they can't get out of that box. They're like, well, I just spent all this money on this new camera. This should get me more jobs. It's like, right. no, you're going to get jobs based on relationships, right. yeah. getting out in front of people. Yeah. Creating some connection with people. It's law firms call them uh, rainmakers. Uh, you know, it, they, they could be the best lawyer in the world, but that's not going to bring you business. It's the people that can bring in business. Those are the rainmakers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the relational aspect. It's important in everything that we do. Sure. But we're just not a relational society. We're a transactional society. And you can see it in every, you know, uh, every business, every, I mean, everything. We're a capitalist country, so we're, we run on our business. Um, and when it's funny, when you look at the people who tend to do best, who tend to be most successful, they're relational thinkers. They're relational people. Um, because that's what people respond to. They want that emotional connection. Um, so I was at this case management agency for a year or so. And within like a couple months, my boss was like, I was running some project and she was like, well, you should go meet with the coalition. They, uh, they do really great work in this area. You could learn a lot. Just go talk to them, see what they're doing. And I went over and met with them and within like 20 minutes, I was like, I need to work here. <laughs> and if you work in child welfare in St. Louis, uh, a lot of times you do want to go to the coalition. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing place to work. It's much smaller and leaner than most organizations, and it's more um, more focused on filling kind of like gaps in the community. Uh, we'll kind of get into that when I'm sure. You I mean, but did that kind of were yeah. those things that really jumped out? You said you said in the first 20 minutes you wanted to work here. Were those some of the reasons? Yeah. So it's just it, when you walk in, every donor I speak with has the same reaction when they see the office. You walk in, it just feels different. Um, it's it's a completely open office. It's bright, it's colorful, people are moving around, people are encouraged to, if you have a question, get up, walk over to that person's desk and ask them. Don't, you know, send them an email, uh, you know, go over there, ask the question, Engage. you'll have people, yeah, you'll break off, go into a space and just think about something, you can um, lean, so every everybody's broken up into these small autonomous teams that focus on one specific issue. So the people we recruit for those jobs are experts in those issues. Uh, it's the smartest place I've ever worked, which I was going to say, I'm gonna want, you know, the army, <laughs> my job wasn't, you know, these are guys who threw rocks at each other for fun. So it's not, but uh, even at U of I, like 
these are people who are experts in a very specific side of things. And so when they're working on a really difficult case, you know, more than one thing goes wrong at one time. Yeah. They can pull each other in and pick each other's brains. And just like listening into that, like just while I was it's in the inspiring. office for the first time, right. You're hearing inspiring. people like bounce these ideas back and forth. <laughs> and it's like, these are people who are driven by this one motivating idea. Um, it's, it's electric, right? I love that. Right. And it's relational. It's fundamentally, it's a relational place. It's not transactional. It's all about, you know, this is a team that trusts each other. It's very tight knit. Um, that's a really attractive offer for, wow. uh, and it, there's, a, again, when we like talk a little bit more about the agency, there's just a million things that make it a, a different, very special place special to work. Place. But I knew immediately that I wanted to work there. And so I was like every two or three weeks I was hitting like refresh on job opportunities on their website. And then after about a year and change at my former employer, uh, I saw an opportunity pop up entry level on the development team, applied for it, got it. And then after, um, gosh, I was there 2016 to 2018 in that role. And then our previous director of development retired and and I took over for her. Wow. Um, But just, so the child welfare team there are like, known as experts in the community, but uh, our former development director, Debbie Janung, was like just this brilliant natural development person. You know, not that there's like anyone who has training in development, like it's just a job you have to kind of sink or swim at, but her whole personality was relational. I mean, she's one of those people who can keep keep in touch with somebody who she met 15 years ago. She's like, yeah, I met him at a networking event and we get lunch three times a year now. And it's like, I, can't even like I can't even <laughs> meet that standard with some of my good friends. You know what I mean? Like I, it's it's unbelievable. So being able to learn from her and then our executive director Melanie Sheets is like, you know, one of the most she did one of the business journals most influential women in business routinely pops up on those kind of lists. When I took over this role, I actually asked a friend of ours, Whitty Dyer, a fundraising consultant. I was like, you know, who do I need to talk to to get advice on how to lead? She's like Melanie. It's like, you're lucky you got it right there in house. Like that's the example, the only example you need. So I was very fortunate to have some uh, great people to learn from around me. So, so, so good mentors set up for success as you kind of move through this job. What are some things that uh, we always like to ask people about? Like, uh, what are some pains? You know, what are some things that you guys fight against or you're working on? Um, Sure. So there's... I would break those into two categories. I would break them into one, um, like societal forces driving children into foster care and keeping them there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I would say the other one is just like pressures on us as fundraisers specifically that are related to working in child welfare. Um, so I'll start with the fundraising ones because those are a little bit more like tangible. Um, and one I know that we've actually talked about before, which is confidentiality. So the system is confidential by design because we have to protect kids' identities, which is how it should be. However, that means it's also unaccountable because it's invisible, you know. Uh, but it also means that 
we can't use faces, we can't use real names. And so when you're trying to tell a story, yep. which if you want to build a relationship with someone, I mean, stories is how you do it. We, we, we love data. We have a full-time or a part-time director of outcomes. All she does is collect data, analyze data. Um, and that's great. But if you want to deepen a relationship, if you want to bring people in and motivate people, you need stories. Um, and we, it is very hard to do that. You know, we, I would say 20% of my time is spent just trying to tell stories, whether that's, we'll collect success stories from our teams, um, say, you know, Hey, who's got a really good placement or a really good story of supporting a family. We'll write them down, change the names, blast those out to everybody. Um, we'll, Call, we'll do calls, we'll meet with people and tell the stories in person. But I mean, it's still a challenge. It's a, well, let's be honest here. It's a massive challenge in yeah. my opinion, because yeah. all of the nonprofits and the schools and those folks come to me and they say, Ryan, what do we do? And I say, oh, we, you know, we got to exactly what you just yeah. said. We got to yeah. tell some stories, create some sort of yeah. emotional connection with the audience. And let's do that with uh, <clears throat> the people you serve. Right. And what sucks is that sometimes people will be like, well, you know, um, we, we can't do that for this reason or that reason. I'm like, okay, well then we'll, we'll start with staff. But I like to use the, right. uh, I like to use the example of the potential, like the, uh, the parent that visits a school, which was me on Friday, right? right. You right. actually want to hear from the other parents in the parking lot more so than you want to hear from the principal or the yeah, teachers. Absolutely. And right, that's right, what right, I try right, and explain right, to people right, is that right. those, yeah. those, Folks that will interview for your film are going to be strong and they're going to fill in some gaps and explain what your organization mm -hmm. does, but you want to hear from the people you serve. Right. So I think Absolutely. it's no joke that that's, that is a challenge for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the invisibility system is a, a big problem. And we have, um, you know, occasionally a, a child will be adopted and then we'll be able to use that story. Um, but it is, it's a massive barrier for us. Um, I would say the other is just that people assume if you look at like where the money goes in philanthropy, um, most of it goes to your, you know, art museum, symphony, you know, the big philanthropic causes. Um, religion is still the number one thing people give to. Uh, it has a plurality of the dollars that come in. Human services and especially child welfare are way down at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're pretty low on the totem pole in terms of giving. You almost need like in that example, and I just, I'm thinking of like the Independence Center because we've done so many projects for them over the years. Mm -hmm. And I've always tried to uh, say, let's do something different every year, you know? And let's also make sure that in, in some of these films that we make, let's make sure that the people that are attending the event can mm -hmm. see themselves in the film. Especially right. because you don't always have, like in your situation, you can't always put that yeah kiddo on camera yeah. or, or whatever um <clears throat> but like donor stories yeah you know donor stories are another option but then the other kind of speed bump to that is sometimes donors don't want to right they don't want to tell their story yeah, they yeah. want to do this kind yeah. of like anonymously or kind of like so yeah. and we we run into that especially our donors are very um the names that give to child welfare are not typically the same people that give to the symphony or the art museum or whatever that is Something and like that. Our, yeah. our donors are typically um, people who are motivated by their own family the most I would say the most common single like emotional connection reason people give because I ask this all the time obviously because this is like my bread and butter this is how we can bring in more support for our kids 
you know, why, why this? Why this cause? And the most common answer is, you know, I, you know, my family's everything. My family growing up gave me everything. It's like I couldn't imagine not having it, mm-hmm. which is such a strange, like imaginative thing, but that's what connects people to us most. And so um, we try when we do tell stories to focus on what family has given in this situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, gratitude. It's always gratitude, yeah, man. It's exactly. like trying to find those yeah. people that yeah, are incredibly so grateful right. for their life situation because of a great parents or a great yeah. you know, extended family and just trying yeah. to tap into that. You know, There's a quote uh, from Oscar Wilde. He says that a cynic is somebody who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And it's very easy in child welfare to be cost-focused. Uh, failure is right outside the door. Uh, you know, the Netflix just released this documentary called the Gabriel Fernandez story. It's about a kid who's in foster care. It's a child who died while in foster care, which is unfortunately fairly common. And unfortunately about the only time you hear about foster care. Um, if you look at, you do a news search about foster care, most of the stories that are going to be in any major newspaper, television channel are going to be child fatalities yeah um and the public is always outraged as they should be but my reaction and this is not our organization this is my personal reaction it's kind of and this is cynical but it's welcome to the party this is the result of not investing in a system that yeah. hey, adequately you think? Yeah. protects kids hey like, what did you think was going to happen man? right you know um, <laughs> but I, I that's the cost of failure i yeah. mean it's a very high and it's very easy to become entirely motivated by that. And I would say that one of the reasons we have the system we do is because uh, frontline staff are motivated by fear of failure. What The thing that immediately attracted me about the coalition, and I'm glad you brought it back to the gratitude thing because it's why I wanted to work there, if it could be distilled down to one reason, is they're value focused. What's the value of success? What is the value of getting a child adopted into a permanent family? What is the value of making a child feel supported and helping them heal through trauma? Um, of giving them that protective factor that Kaiser Permanente Institute says is the most important thing that they can have in their life. That's the, that's the it's like what's, it's that's like, what you but, need. But it's like saying like, what's the value of love? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because if a right. child is loved, they're going to be okay. Right. I used to work with this 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 district, and uh, there was a great guy there, a PR guy. We were standing around talking one time about all the challenges they have, and he said, "You know what, Ryan? He's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, it doesn't matter what high school you go to. None of that matters. He's like, what matters yeah. is parents at home that just love you and support yeah. you and help you. He's like, it doesn't matter if you go to this high school or that or this grade school, right? You know. And I've that that story has echoed a lot lately because it's you know." We un, we tend to undervalue what it means to have two loving parents at home yeah. and what it can do for a person. Yeah, you know, and we have uh, phenomenal single parent households. the The key difference I would say is that, and this is what we tell we I don't tell new parents this, but our staff that trains new foster adoptive families is you know you can be a single parent, you can be uh, you know a new transplant here, whatever you need to have a support network. The child needs to have those stable adult relationships in a child's life, whether that's being a you know, big brother, big sister, a mentor in some way, a tutor, like whatever that is, 
children need stable relationships with adults. Mm-hmm. Um, that starts at home, but it certainly shouldn't end at home. Um, but that's it's that that kind of like just as a fundraiser too. Especially you see sometimes, you know, I haven't seen anyone here in St. Louis do it, fortunately. But you'll see like, you know, donate today to. The, the great example is, what is it, uh, UNICEF? I can pick on them. They're, like, huge, right? Like, they'll ha- run They're the thing, and it's, podcast. like, <laughs> these, these kids that have, like, the distended stomach, and there's, like, flies, oh and it's, like, is this the story you want? Like, what is, what is my donation doing? This is just, this is guilt. This is pure guilt. And what I would compare that Mar- to... Marketing via guilt. Right. Yeah, yeah that's not building <clears throat> any kind of emotional connection. That's That's fear and shame and you might get a quick bump in in revenue off that but I'll tell you that person's going to give they're never going to give again because they don't want to think about you they don't want to think about that you know yeah that's a problem and it's real you know should we give more to it absolutely but I don't have any long-term investment in that I don't I don't see the result of that if you tell someone a story that makes them feel good that makes them feel like they've accomplished something they're going to remember it in five years. You don't have to, you, you should ask them as a fundraiser. You should, definitely should ask them again. But you probably won't have to. You're not as likely to have to because in five years, they're going to remember how that felt because that's how our brains are wired. It's a self protective mechanism in our basic underlying neurology that we need to remember those positive things. They're going to remember that mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to love your organization for it. Well, it's like you said earlier the value of stories is that stories make you feel something. And right. you're going to remember that, you know. So what do you, what do you want to tell the, the 20-something? We talked about that kind of crazy decade, right, your 20s. What do you want to tell the young 20-something who is uh, working at a nonprofit, who's coming out of college thinking about this mm. field? You've had an incredible journey so far, and I love your backstory. <laughs> I wish we had more time to talk. Yes. <laughs> what, what do you want to tell? Like, what's a good piece of advice that you want young people to hear as they begin to consider maybe working in the nonprofit world? Every, um, was it? I think Socrates says that we're social animals. So that's like fundamentally, I mean, we're, we're animals that evolved on the African savanna to hunt in groups, right? Uh, we're the, one of the only animals in the animal kingdom that has the neural architecture to learn from one another. And it's not because we're so smart, it's because we have the desire to teach things to one another. Almost no one else has that. Almost, when I say no one, almost nothing else has that. Almost no other animal has that fundamental underlying thing. And so I'm not perfect at this. I'm not even that good at it. I make a conscious effort to do it. but learning from other people, asking questions, listening to people. Um, it doesn't matter. The smartest person in the room, because we're social animals, the smartest person in the room is never going to be the person who's read the most. It's never going to be the person who's got a PhD. It's going to be the person who has the best ability to get, find and procure knowledge from other people. And you're only going to do that if you ask a lot of questions, volunteer for a lot of stuff, put your hand up. If somebody wants something done, put your hand up because that's going to give you access to relationships and those relationships are going to teach you things. I'm not saying go out and get 20 mentors and you know, 
that can be a good thing too. But I see sometimes people put a little bit too much. You need to focus on your work too. Yeah, but life experiences. Right. Yeah. When you have a problem, uh, you know, I hate to rely on the cliche things, but if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, that kind of idea. But if you're having a problem in your work and you're going to, if you're not having problems in your work, you're not challenging yourself. Like you need to push yourself more. Um, if you're having a problem, ask around. You don't necessarily have to take all of the advice, but hearing ideas is going to help you reach a better decision. You need to democratize all your information. You need to have a lot of different perspectives about things. Um, and you need to really listen to them, you know, not listening to confirm your, I'm guilty of that very often. I have to catch myself. And so an another part of that would be when you build relationships, build them with people who are willing to challenge you on things and, and say no. And last point, I could go on for this forever. <laughs> I, I've learned by failure my whole life and I've failed at a million things. And so <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I could, I could go on forever about this, but, um, but you're on build, the right track because it's like yeah. young people need to realize that, 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 that and having old experience. Too. Yeah. And everybody needs, everybody. I, I, like, I like, meet people who are getting ready to retire and I'm like, how did you never pick this information up? Like, how did you get by without the, anyway. yeah, yeah, life experience is just, you just can't, because uh, I'm right there with you. I was never a great student. I didn't have those, mm -hmm. those great experiences in high school. Everything happened for me a lot later, Yeah, but it was life experiences. It was travel. It was, you know, uh, I've talked about this before in other podcasts and other things. I heard it on a podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, Gabby Reese was being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. Um, oh, yeah, I love Tim yeah, Ferriss. Did you yeah. listen to his Jamie Foxx interview? It's the best. It's like my is, favorite the, thing I've my, ever listened to. It's like my all part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's I the other one that. he does yeah, with yeah. Seth Godin? The one with Seth Godin's really yeah. great. Jamie Foxx is fascinating. Uh, guy. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, well, he did one way back when with Gabby Reese and with Laird Hamilton, and mm -hmm. she talks about uh, it's like the end of the interview, and she says, go first. That was like her advice to the audience. And she gave mm -hmm. this, this example, this story of like uh, walking down the street. Like a lot of times people just don't even like wave at each other, engage each other, you know? And she's like, yeah. be the first one to try that. And they sure. may not wave back or they might not engage with you, but they might. Right. She told the story about waving at a little old lady one day. And then she ended up having this like three hour conversation with this amazing <laughs> woman who lived this yeah. amazing life. Yeah. And so she, just, she yeah. says, you know, go first. Yeah. It's just like what you're saying about life experiences. Right. Like ask. That kind of stuff, it costs emotional energy, but nine times out of 10, you're gonna get, it's gonna pay dividends, mm -hmm. um, you know, try it. Yeah, It's always it's almost always worth the time. Uh, you never know what somebody's gonna be able to teach you or um, give you, and quite honestly, in our transactional society, just having those relationships, even if they don't necessarily pay off with anything, is just healthier for all of us as people to build those, again. Not perfect about it, but just something that I. Sometimes I think we're um, our best talents are the ones we're not naturally good at. That's a uh, James Joyce quote. He says a writer's. I think it's James. I don't. I'm not sure. I might be misquoting him, but a writer's someone for whom writing is very difficult. Right, like the things that we know are weakness, but we have this compulsion to work on are often our most important. Um, strengths yeah well you suffer for your passion sometimes you yeah. suffer for your art you absolutely know? 
So this has been incredible, man. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah. Um, I wish we had more time because it sounds like we could talk for a few more hours. Um, tell us where we can find you. We can find your organization. Yeah, sure. Are there opportunities to volunteer, to donate online? Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, the number one call to action that we have at the coalition is always we need more foster and adoptive parents. Um, that is the number one thing. That is the the foster and adoptive parents and guardianship parents are the front line for helping kids heal from trauma. We could not do the work we do. I talk a, a lot about our amazing team internally at the office. Their work pales in comparison to the parents that they are helping, and they would all say that exact same thing. They do it to support and find parents to help these kids because they're the ones who are at two in the morning dealing with a um, explosion of energy and aggression brought on by trauma. They're the ones who are dealing with these, um, the highs and the lows um, that help these kids get through those really turbulent years. Um, so you can go fill out an inquiry online at our website, which is www.foster-adopt.org. Uh, you can fill out an inquiry there or you can call us and one of our staff will take that call. I take those calls as well. We'll just get some basic information from you and get you started with the process. Uh, however, not everyone can foster and adopt. Um, may not be the right life stage for you. You may have too many kids already in your home. You may have uh, disability or it's just not. There's tons of reasons. There's so many. Um, if that's the case or if you'd like to do more on top of your, you know, whatever role you have, consider volunteering. You know, we have lots of opportunities, whether it's events. We have our foster friends who are sort of a premier group of people that will jump in at the last minute for respite, you know, doing uh, childcare events or um, sort of day activities like at Grant's Farm or something with the kids. Um, we have opportunities. We have a Cinderella project going on right now, which is getting prom dresses and tuxes for the guys for oh, kids great. impacted by foster care. Right. Um, little wishes. We got a grant, 4,500 uh, holiday wishes from kids around the holiday season. We need a ton of help with that. And there's all sorts of ways to get involved. And you can find those opportunities on our website as well. Um, donating, obviously, can't leave that out. Um, the impact of a gift at the coalition is finding a home for a kid or keeping a kid at home. Your dollars support um, our team who goes into the home. That's like the number one thing we need. And I, you know, I wish I could talk more about that because it's one of the things that makes the coalition unique, but we don't run on government contracts. Most of our, most of our dollars are privately fundraised through individuals, family foundations, things of that nature, which is really unique in child welfare because most agencies are predominantly funded by rigid government contracts. And the great thing about privately fundraising, even though it's a little bit more work on our end, is that we can pay people better, which means they stay longer. We have like a 95% ret employee retention rate, which I can tell you that um, the average in child welfare is like 30 to 50%. And if 50% of your staff is new, that means the people who are experienced are spending most of their time training and not actually doing the work. So privately fundraising, um, again, takes more work on our end, but your dollar goes farther. It helps create these innovative new programs. It helps keep kids with their families. Um, volunteering, donating, being a foster adoptive parent. If you've got another idea, if you, we're happy to hear it. Again, we, we, it takes, we call ourselves a coalition because it takes 
a coalition of people. This problem is way too big. There's 4,500 kids in foster care right now in Metro St. Louis, in the 14 counties. Say that serve. again. There are 4,500 kids 4, in foster care. There's actually probably 46 or seven. Wow. It kind of fluctuates. Um, but right now, in the St. Louis area, in the St. Louis metro area, it's going to take, and that's just wow. point in time. If you look at how many it is like over the course of a year, it's much more than that. Um, it's going to take more than just one agency and a couple partners. You know, we're a coalition of 28 member agencies. Uh, it's going to take more than just those agencies. It's going to take businesses. It's going to take individuals. It's going to take uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, places of worship. It's going to take every person in this community to create the kind of system that we want that's actually going to keep kids out of the system because the ultimate goal is always to get kids out of foster care and into permanent family. It's going to take everybody. And that's one of the reasons why we call ourselves a coalition. The name is a mouthful, but it is uh, accurate into what we're trying to build. Well, what we'll do is we'll put some links uh, in the podcast sure. to the to the agents, to the coalition, Great. and anything else you want us to include in there. But okay. I think the theme of this podcast is like, wow, like incredible backstory, incredible organization. Like, yeah, I kept thinking that the whole time. I'm like, I got to stop place. saying wow every time he tells me another incredible story. <laughs> it's a hell of a place, and I wish I wish we had I wish we had more time for the the kids stories because well, maybe what we can do is maybe we can have you back and and kind of dig into that. Yeah, that'd yeah, be great. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love would love to get. Uh, I'm trying to think. You know, and maybe that's a solution that, that you guys can think about too. Is like uh, maybe something similar to this um, is a way to connect stories. Stories that, that are you know, yeah. Maybe you know what's really form. what's just a cool example. If, if people would hear more like stories, is humans of foster care. Yeah. It's like it's that Same kind thing. of that format. Yeah. Humans in New York. It, it gives you a taste of really, and we have a blog on our website too, where you can read more stories. You sign up for our newsletter. We try and keep a story in every newsletter that goes out monthly, but. Uh, the stories are really incredible, and I would be totally failing my job if I didn't mention that I've thanked, talked about how amazing our staff is, our donors and volunteers are incredible, um, the foster adopted parents are great, but the kids who like survive and thrive in foster care uh, are really the ones. Like, if you want to talk about resilience, that's a big like buzzword right now, or like grit. Grit, yeah. Um, these are kids who have been asked to fight before they come into care, whatever reason brought them in, they've had to fight through that. The system itself is not stable, that uncertainty is not healthy for a child to grow up in. And then once they get placed, they have to overcome, I think it's like 25% of kids in care of post-traumatic stress disorder. I can tell you that for returning vets, it's 20%. For returning combat veterans from Afghanistan, it was 20%. So. These, this is the kind of things that these kids are having to deal with as they grow into young adults. And then having to figure out, like, what do I want to do with my life? How do I get there? You know, just romance. Like, like all, the, yeah. all the stuff that these, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's and they are, uh, they are truly, each and every one of them, truly incredible and inspiring. They're, they're certainly the, the heroes of the story. So I, I wish that was that would be the one thing I would like to get into. Well, we have to figure that out, and if yeah. there's anything we can do to help you guys too, even like with a donation of some equipment or something, that for you to be able to record and maybe yeah, attempt absolutely. something. Because like, I always tell people I too, it's like the, it's kind of that DIY nature of, of mm -hmm. some of of what content creation is. You know, yeah. 
Uh, I always joke, I always say this, the video gods will strike me down, but we try to empower people, you know, to say you can generate content yeah, with your absolutely. phone or with a small yeah. camera, you know, it's Don't not let the, uh, perfection and high resolution be yeah, the enemy of getting something done. Yeah, content yeah. and story yeah. kind of like trumps the, uh, the fancy camera thing, you right. know, so we'll figure that yeah. out. Well, man, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks uh, we'll for having me. We'll wrap up here, but I think we may time. have uh, some future conversations with you. Great. Beautiful. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks, brother.